Dr. Mitchell Cousy sits down to discuss his new book about toxic people. This is called Why I Don't Work Here Anymore. He's a Fulbright scholar. He's been featured on CNN, Fortune, and the New York Times. We are going to get somewhere right now. And so, Mitch, can I call you Mitch or yes, Dr. Please. Oh, no, no, oh, yeah. Mitch. Absolutely. Um, so... You've written business leadership books for 20 years. Yes. What lessons from the books that you've written still hold true today? And then which ones, you know, maybe stars have faded that you've Mm -hmm. seen? One thing that I think about is respect still holds true. Mm -hmm. Um, The term that uh, my, in a previous book, my previous co-author and I coined is everyday civility. Yeah. So what's interesting about your question is respect, respectful engagement, everyday civility still holds true. However, now we have significant evidence that says respect also has an impact on business and Mm -hmm. business success. So it's no longer just a nice thing to have. And it's no longer simply about treating people nicely. Um, Sometimes you have to give hard feedback, and when you give it in a respectful way, that's far more successful than saying, I'm just going to avoid giving the person feedback and just be nice. So respect is not about being nice. Mm -hmm. Um, This kind of came up with, I was thinking about this for a later question. By the way, your your new book is Why I Don't Work Here Anymore, and it's it's investigating deep dive into toxic environment and toxic employees and toxic boxes. Is that fair to say? Yes. So I got tons of, and and we even talked on the (laughs) phone about this. I've got so many questions. And then you are so passionate about this, and you found that your listeners and other lectures you've been giving, they're really responding well to this because it touches so many people. But uh, uh, this was a later question, but I'm bringing it forward. Uh, We talk about the millennial, you know, Mm -hmm. group and, you know, I I watch all kinds of media and they label kind of really soft liberal people as snowflakes. Yes. You know, does any of this like really, is that changing kind of how you, you know, viewed to coach people on how to talk because all these examples in the book that you give on how to have respectful conversations with toxic employees or bosses Mm -hmm. is super difficult and very carefully worded. Yes. So is that changed because of the kind of a new population of workforce? Well, what's interesting about that question is that first of all, you always need to tailor the feedback to the context of the situation. So in the book, Why I Don't Work Here Anymore, I talk about tailoring the conversation, first of all, to three groups of employees. Is the person a direct report of yours? Mm -hmm. Is the person a peer? Or as you said, the boss. Is the the person a boss? By the way, who do you think, Jeff, is the most difficult person to give feedback to? Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine. Yes, it's it's the boss. Yeah. The boss. And that is uh, one of the top questions I get from clients in my keynote addresses. How in the world do I give um, feedback to a toxic boss? What's also interesting about your question and um, interwoven in that is the whole perspective of 
the different generations. And by the way, this is the first time in history we've had four generations in the workforce. Mm, really? Yes. So what that means is, yes, you do have to tailor the conversation. But I said tailor, not kowtow uh -huh. to the individual. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the youngest generation in the workforce, the most socially media savvy generation in the workforce. Yes, some of the feedback may be tailored to um, a cell phone conversation. But just because some individuals prefer texting and cell phones doesn't mean you do that all the time either. There was an old adage years ago from Minolta that said slightly ahead of our time. Well, I believe when you're giving feedback to people, you also have to push them slightly beyond where they're at. So with mm -hmm. this generation, there are times, you know what? We're going to have a face-to-face -face conversation about this. Mm -hmm. and, and a variety of strategies and give and take of these strategies is what one of the hallmarks for success. And is there a particular industry that seems to have the toughest challenges when it comes to internal management of employees? Great question again. Uh, would you like to be a doctoral student of mine? I would like that very much. <laughs> I would like to rather do the uh, uh, honorary sort of honorary, degree. So you don't have to go through the work. Correct. Right. <laughs> I've already done the work. I got the questions. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it is a su superb question. And the question, again, for our listening audience, is there a specific industry out there mm -hmm. that, um, that wrestles with this more than anyone else? Well, first of all, uh, toxic individuals are not relegated to one industry. However, there is one industry that has done more than any other industry related to toxic behaviors, and it's healthcare. I read a little bit about that was that was a, a big part of like chapter two or something. Yes. What did you look? What did you? What are some of the th things that you remember about the the healthcare industry? Jeff? Well, there was a, a example of a woman um, who was really hard on her staff and like, that's not right. She was always pointing out people who were wrong. And then when, when asked, um, why do you talk like that? She said, well, would you like an operating room that um, no one in there is, is willing to correct you because of your wrath? That's right. I interestingly, um, in, in that scenario, I remember that occurred to me in a keynote address that I was giving and I was talking about how some toxic individuals are really perfectionists. And that perfectionism can be truly a negative attribute, negative part of our personality. And a surgeon uh, raised his hand, group of 500 people in the room, and said, well, Mitch, would you want to go to a surgeon who is not perfect? Mm -hmm. And my response was, doctor, I'd want to go to a surgeon, and if he or she is about to make a mistake, someone feels comfortable enough to let them know yeah. they're about to make a mistake. And there was utter silence in the room. Um, again, health that was your So that was your answer to a question? That was asked. my answer to a question. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, um, some of the research in healthcare has found, for example, um, 
60 to 80% of nurses reported that disruptive behaviors impacted patient safety mm-hmm. and also reported that this resulted in patient, 15% patient death. Subsequently, what this means is, and before I started reading this research, I thought mistakes in healthcare were a result of incompetence, which of course it could be, but a big part of this is a mistake in not communicating to someone because you fear your head is going to get chopped off. Because there's a real hierarchy in that environment, right? And you've got stressed out uh, over, well, they've spent so much time in residency and they're it's just a big That's right. deal. That's and right. so then the, the disparities between a nurse's degree and a doctor's degree, they, they must create this kind of like lording over kind of environment. And that is toxic. Right. Interestingly, the Joint Commission that accredits hospitals has now part of their mantra, not mantra, their, um, their guidelines to be accredited, that you have to have a process for dealing with any behavior that impacts patient safety. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, yeah, or pulling <clears throat> us all back, is yeah. that healthcare has done more than any. And in the, in the research study that I conducted with my colleague of over 400 um, leaders related to toxic personalities, 39% came from healthcare. So does that mean healthcare has more? No, and I've not found that any industry has any more toxic people than any other. Mm-hmm. But healthcare has done more proactively than any other industry. Mm. Well, in your latest book, I was saying that you take like a deep dive into the toxic work, um, workmates and workplace, but why are so many toxic individuals high achievers and high performers? That's a, that's a superb question. So um, first of all, uh, when you have a high achiever, sometimes they are very gifted, and in the book I talk about this, that they knock down but kiss up. Yeah, I used that actually in a, in a conversation just recently, because when we spoke on the phone about a week ago, that's brilliant. Say that again. They knock down but kiss up. And what was the analogy you used? But, uh, there's more question to be answered there, but you can use an analogy even when interviewing yes. people. Well, what's, what's interesting uh, about that is that what first of all that that phrase means is often the boss of the toxic individual because the toxic individual is gifted at kissing up at times to them mm-hmm. and back to your high achievers yeah that the boss perceives the individual well i know he or she is kind of tough on people but they really need to do that And they're not truly aware of the pain that they are causing Mm -hmm. um, the team or the organization. Now, in terms of the second question that you just asked about sort of recruiting and to make sure that you don't recruit toxic individuals, there's there's a whole host of strategies. And as a corporate psychologist myself, um, I've used many of these strategies. But here's a simple one that anybody could use. And I'm going to start by telling you a story. And this is a true story. The, a vice president is being hired for a 
high-level position and they're flying her across the country and the hiring manager couldn't meet the candidate at the airport right away. Mm -hmm. The administrative assistant met that candidate and the administrative assistant is trying to have a conversation. You know, how was your flight? Do you have any questions? And the administrative assistant was simply getting responses like, yes, no, good flight, blah, 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 blah. And the administrative assistant thought, well, you know what? She might be nervous. Yeah, tired or nervous coming across the country. Until Mm -hmm. the hiring manager showed up Uh at the airport. And all of a sudden... Lights on. Lights on, ebullient, high energy. um, And the administrative assistant is thinking to himself, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is this is a potentially toxic individual who is likely going to kiss up to the people needed to be kissed up to and knock down to people he, in this instance, she doesn't care about. So what's the strategy? The strategy is a really simple one. Next time you are recruiting someone, and typically, Jeff, I'll bet you have a team of people that are hiring designers, etc., or who, which real estate agents you want to work with. Try this strategy as well. Think about all those individuals who are not part of the interviewing team who are likely to interact with that person and go up to them and say, you may or may not have a chance to talk with this individual, but if you do, did the person give you eye contact? Did it look like a kind of person that you would like to work with and then collect the data after the interviews? Because if an individual is one who's going to knock down but kiss up, they're probably not going to give people that they perceive as not having influence or power a lot of respect. Yeah, that winds me up. Like, that's exactly, you know... The, not the strategy I try to create in our culture here on our team. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's kind of a, it's a really great reminder, a really great lesson. Like we try to, you know, make our the entire process of working with our design team like a lot like hospita- hospitality in a way. Mm-hmm. You come in, you know, today we offer, you know, you coffee, the, the clients, you know, may have a cheese board. Um, we try to send neat gifts so it just feels more mm-hmm. connected. We do the same thing for our teammates and be send them mm-hmm. on a nice little retreat, get a house away for the weekend and give our, our teammates the exact same experience to try to implant that into the culture. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the janitorial staff gets the same, hello, good morning, how are you, as uh, you know, a team leader. Great, and, and you're doing it the right way. And carry that through in a formal way when you're interviewing. So one step further, is that you're interviewing a real estate agent, you're inter- interviewing a designer, go to the, all the individuals who you perceive um, may not be mm-hmm. formally interviewing those individuals and ask them to pay a special note with some of the questions that I just gave you and then go back and talk to them. You might find some really revealing statistics. Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to deploy that. This is ridiculously Cool. I mean, it's a it's a business book, and I'm in an interior design world. It, it, you, I don't think everybody realizes how how mm, this is data. If you run a business, you need to look, well know. Well, absolutely. In fact, in our research study of 400 individuals, we found that 
in the lifetime of one's career, mm. they at ninety-four percent have um, uh, worked with a toxic individual. That's huge. It's huge. It's it's um, it's where sexual harassment was in the seventies when people ignored it, really. And now now it's it's well, we know what's going on now. In, yeah. In, yeah. Uh, so. What I really believe in a few years, toxic behaviors in organizations are going to be given the same respect as many other things that are going on in the human resources areas within organizations. The time has come for everyday civility and for people to understand its impact on our personal well-being on the performance of the team, and also on the finances of the yeah, organization. Yeah, bottom line. Bottom line, and I've why got the hard data to show that. Yeah, why don't do toxic people, okay, here's like an example from your book. Um, let me show you this. By the way, I'm quite gonna... impressed with, you've yeah. really, yeah. that is dog-eared that book, and yeah, you've got highlighting everywhere. <laughs> why I don't work here anymore. Yes. Shaming, passive hostility, and sabotage. Those are the Do you three. want to try to define those? Yes. Those are kind of the, the actions of those T people. You know what's interesting about that question to me? Look at how long we've been on this interview for about 15 minutes. And this typically happens. You haven't asked what the definition of a toxic person is. And interestingly, you don't need to. Yeah. <laughs> because when the minute I say a toxic individual, I can't, I can't be at a cocktail party and tell people oh. what I do because 100% of the time, someone will say, Mitch, I've got a story for you. Oh of course, God. I've heard these stories. But anyway, let's get back to Do you to get the, bored of hearing No, I don't. That's the not. thing. I don't, I don't get bored. But here's the, <laughs> here's the interesting thing about this. Let's get back to the regularly scheduled program. Yeah. And that is the three hallmarks of a toxic individual that you took from the book yes. and that comes from our research study that I had done with Dr. Elizabeth Holloway. Shaming, passive hostility, and team sabotage. So shaming. They humiliate people one-on-one -on -one or in public. Can you give us an example of what that sounds like? Yes. Let I me... mean, I can already dream it up, but... Why don't you tell me? Oh, you can dream it up. No, no, I want to hear from you. I want to hear yours. Okay. Uh, an example of shaming would be Jeff, I, I really appreciated the comments you raised at the meeting today. Too bad you came in 15 minutes late. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know. It, <laughs> In a way, I'm laughing, but like, that's like, that goes down. Right. It, it goes down. It shuts people down mm, completely. Yeah. And the shaming can be one-on-one -on -one, or it can be in a team type of setting right and isn't it like 10 times worse what's the research say when you do it in a, a setting with other people well yes it's it's i mean and and then the person who is doing the shaming knows that and they know exactly how to pinpoint um to make it hurt the second behavior is passive hostility these are individuals who get digs at people you know mm. they, they they stab them in the back but then there's a smile on their face and uh, then the third 
is sabotaging, sabotaging the efforts of the team. And why do they want to, why do they want to sabotage? Well, first of all, it makes them look better as well. If only the team had listened to me, this is what would have, what would have happened. Oh, God. So those are the, the three areas, shaming, passive hostility, and team sabotage. What's, what's incredible is all these things hurt. Um, in, in our study, um, we asked, um, and we had 400 people in our study, we asked them to think about uh, one individual and they answered uh, one individual who was toxic and they answered all 82 items of mm. our survey based on this one individual. And one of the questions we asked is we asked them on a scale of 1 to 10 to rate the severity of the toxic person that they were thinking about. And 92% of the 400 people in our study rated it between 7 and 10. Mm -hmm. Which means that they're talking about some really severe behaviors. I did a book <clears throat> signing a few years ago, and before the book signing, um, I did a 30-minute presentation. And afterwards, this woman came up to me and said, first of all, she was crying. She said, this is the first time in my life that I realize that what I've been going through with a toxic person shaming me is not about me. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a whole a host of revelations that occur from, from this by understanding that it does affect our personal well-being as well. Mm. Do you think that, you know, that's Tessa, uh, the, the questions you ask, there's, you know, I'm the only one who has the guts to do something, something about, about this. It. Um, everyone else is afraid to speak up, so I do. No one brings to the table what I bring. The rest of the team is chicken right. to pose <laughs> this idea. You know, those, do you think that everybody, is, so, so it's interesting, that, that's it, 7 to 10, 7 out of 10 was the answer that 92% of the people said 7 out of 10. So that's like, it's kind of severe. Severe. But do you think that everybody has a, a lot, or at least a lot of people have a little bit of that in them? Well, you know, this is, this is the interesting thing. Let's talk about, rather than the category, shaming, passive hostility, and team sabotage, let's talk about the formal definition that we've established. And it's, it's these are toxic behaviors or counterproductive work behaviors but they are a pattern of counterproductive work behaviors that can seriously debilitate an individual, a team, or an organization. So the key message is here, here uh, is a pattern. So um, we're all uncivil at times. Mm -hmm. No one is perfect, we are human beings. Maybe you were rude to someone or maybe you didn't give them the respect that they deserve. But the question that I would have is, is this a pattern? So that's the first hallmark. The second is this. If you ask the question, that's good news. And why is that? Because most truly toxic individuals are clueless about the impact of their behavior on others. Right. And subsequently, if they're clueless, they're not going to ask. So you the ask, fact that you asked ask that so. question, you, you have my absolution that you're not toxic. 
Jeff. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's interesting. Like, I'm, you know, I, these, these podcasts, I mean, get to sit uh, next to and with uh, some phenomenally, you know, rich people and knowledge and these conversations. Like, I, I'm kind of the beneficiary, mm. you know, because I'm doing the research. I'm learning so much here. So thank you again for coming. But I, I took this and I was like, well, I actually took that quiz. And there's, unfortunately, I had to admit, I, you talk about pot shots. Mm -hmm. And I think I used to use, it was under like, I thought it was funny. And I used sarcasm. Mm -hmm. and, I've, and I think maybe I was putting people down, but I did it under this ruse of sarcasm and humor. And furthermore, I was talking about, about this with my wife last night, who's South African. I often mention that. And, you know, I, I met her living in London in the British humor. Right. It's very like put down, laugh at you, that's part. And then you get put down, laugh, people laugh at you. Right. Well, here's the interesting thing. Sarcasm isn't bad. Mm -hmm. Sarcasm, sarcasm is a great form of humor. However, if it's a pattern and you're worried about it, not you personally, but mm -hmm. anyone listening is worried about it, look at the intent. And the only way to, to really to, to assess that and I talk about that in the quiz that the you just talked about, is, is go ask and ask, go and ask the individual. Yeah. Ask him or her, you know, I use sarcasm a fair amount. Can you tell me, does it hurt? Yeah. And, if it, and if it does, explore that and then drop back five a little bit and, yeah. um, and start altering your behavior. Again, the key here is it's a pattern. Um, and sarcasm is okay. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I was kind of analyzing this, and, and I think like two years ago, I could see that I, I actually have to grow up now. Mm. Not grow up now, but I've, I got, there's no benefit from that activity. And I wouldn't say I was severe like we discussed, but I, was, I had to answer those questions. Honestly, it was interesting. You also asked in the book to have other people take that test for you or right. about you. Did you give it to your wife? No, because I already marked the answers, but I did go through them with her. Buy another and I was book. Like, and you're this one. <laughs> no, I'm Jeff, just go buy another book. I already got two. I already got two. He's gonna. I got a clean copy. I'm gonna use his. You didn't take that, did you? But yeah. that, you know, that's the that's a hallmark. What's interesting about that is, if, and that's part of the quiz here. If there's any question about this, give it to someone who knows you well, either either spouse, significant other, or a work colleague. And then talk about it. That's, that's the key here. Um, so then walk me through how, uh, the way a manager in an organization coaches a toxic teammate what, in what you call uh, to make a true four-step apology. Oh. And, and you write about that. And then after that, then what? Well, it's interesting. One of the, when people read this book, one of the questions they often write me about is tell me more about the four-step apology really yeah in fact again i have to i have to couch this no pun intended <laughs> couch <laughs> i have to couch this from the perspective is i'm going to talk about the proper apology from a western perspective because there are different cultures that have different views of the apology and the the apology i'm going to talk about has been um, researched by psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, 
religious uh, leaders, etc. And um, first of all, the apology does need to be authentic. So the four-step apology is thinking about something that you want to apologize to someone that you've uh, you've had a um, misstep with them, let's say. Mm -hmm. Or in the book, I talk about if you perceive that you've engaged in toxic behaviors to someone and you want to apologize. First mm -hmm. of all, first step is state what you did framed in the past. Mm -hmm. The second is talk about their, how your actions affected another individual. I realize that when I did that in the past, that it, it made you feel like this. It made you feel like this. It, made, it, it may have shamed you. Mm -hmm. You may have felt humiliated. So the first, again, frame it in the past, what you did, mm -hmm. how that affected other individuals. Then your apology or your sorrow. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I apologize. Before I give you the fourth step, how do you typically apologize, Jeff? Or no buts. Ah, yes. Are we read? Yes, you read. I read. So I should ask some other people in the room then. The, 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 way, the way people... <laughs> Scott Robbie. Yeah. <laughs> the, way, the way people typically apologize in Western culture yeah. is, I'm sorry. But, but let me qualify. It right. doesn't actually mean and, it. And, and you, what, I shouldn't actually take my apology. And what researchers have found is what comes after the but is often regarded as the excuse yeah. that negates the apologies. Mm -hmm. So first, frame, in the, uh, frame it in the past how that affects other individuals, you're sorry, no but. And the final fourth step is what you're going to do to rectify the situation in the future. Yeah. So what this I say... Is only true for most any apology, any you know, conflict resolution? Well, is it any different than... Well, what's interesting that is different is, first of all, there isn't a but here. Yes. Second, there's rectification. When you think about the way most people apologize... I'm sorry I was late for this meeting, but I ran into traffic. There's no, and the thing is, this has happened for the past six meetings, and there's no, no one, the individual doesn't take responsibility of saying, this is what I'm going to do to change it in the future. Mm -hmm. And so what I actually say to my clients is, if you don't have any intention in rectifying it, don't apologize. Don't apologize. apologize right, Because right, you don't right. mean it. The apology has to be authentic. Yeah. And what I found is people can't do this unless they write it down. So the next time you're going to apologize um, to your wife for something, make sure you have the four-step apology in the palm of your hand. Written in ink, yes. Because it's very difficult to do. People get into the frame of, I'm sorry, but. Um, how much time do we have? This is going so fast. We're like, okay, cool. Um, you talked about the recruiting. That was one of my questions. Um, like, what's a re recurring mistake that you see companies do that drives you nuts? In recruiting? Yeah. Well, one is, and, and I gave you that tip already, is that they don't include people who have an opportunity to interact with this candidate, and they disregard those individuals. They are seeing some things that you would never see. Another scenario that a client related to me was this person was coming for an interview and accidentally the driver 
left his portfolio in the back seat and didn't check when he was getting out. Well, what was interesting is when he discovered this as he was leaving and he, he was coming back in, he started chewing out the driver. And no one sees this kind of behavior unless you go back and say, I want to talk to the driver mm -hmm. and find out what was it like that 45 minutes from the airport with this individual? Was, was this person on the computer the whole time and didn't engage you in any conversation? These individuals can give you a robust amount of information that could tell you that this individual is likely to knock down but kiss up. I do this, uh, I've been hiring people for like 15 years. This has been my you know, entire adult life, mm -hmm. like running this organization or being a part of a great organization, I should say. But I've, I've got this technique now on how we do recruiting or how we do hiring. I'm going to run it past you. Okay. You ready for this? I'm ready. I don't know if it's like a technique or anything, but it's kind of the way I go about it. It's sort of a, it's a really slow recruitment. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, no, that's not revolutionary, but I really paint the picture of what uh, our organization is about, or the culture here, what we're asking for people, and it starts with, you know, we are hard workers. You know, I'll, t I'll tell people the, the great things and also tell them what I think the bad things are, too. Mm -hmm. So I paint this real picture, and part of it includes, um, you know, uh, we are positive here, and, and I work hard, long hours. I love it, and I'm not gonna be in an environment that is not happy for me. Great. And, and that it's, a, it's selfish for me to like, think that way, but in the same sense, I'm creating something that everybody who comes on board knows what they're signing up for, and that actually it's a really, really happy team. Mm -hmm. And so, and then I paint a bunch of other things too. Um, but then I, then I say, um, you know, when I talk about a lot of longevity, I used to, I tell them this bit about where I used to want, People stay around for five years because they used to never say anything. Now I've got people around for seven or eight. So now I say 10 years. Mm -hmm. and I tell them life, life changes. I know it's not like a, not a contract forever, but I mean, see if you can yes. picture yourself here for a long time. And then I try to pick away at anything that would be really painful for them. Commute, make sure the salary's right, you know, anything. Don't just come because you love the, what you're right. seeing, but sit with it. And then say if it, you know, it really fits you. And then um, I, I think by doing that, like I try to find the pain points, paint the real expectation of supreme positivity, um, and I've had more. And then and then longevity mm -hmm. request. You want to pick that apart? I do. No, and I, mean, I don't mean I want to pick it apart no. because <laughs> it's a it's incredibly positive strategy. Um, if I were looking for a job, I'd, I'd want to come here for a number of reasons. One is one of the things you just talked about. But secondly, what happens on the phone when I, when I call? I mean, Robbie ha was, was so eloquent and so gracious to me when I called several times today. What's the dress code here? Oh, Mitch, we're you know, a really high design firm, business, sort of business, but high-end business casual. And it was a great conversation. Here's a tip that you may want to think about mm -hmm. in the future, because mm -hmm. you told me to pick it apart. Yeah. I'm actually not going to pick it apart. I'm going to give you an enhancement. Rather than you alone doing that, what if you were to assemble a team and you said, we've got mm -hmm. three or four individuals and I want to give you my rendition, positives and negatives, and then I want 
the same kind of process to go on uh, with team members here without my being here. Mm -hmm. Let them talk with you about this. Now, it can happen, and I'll bet it's happening spontaneously anyway, but um, there's a psychological principle that's called the discriminative stimulus. The discriminative, discriminative stimulus. The discriminative you, I know stimulus. you would like that term. So what that means is you're going to set the occasion for this to occur with others. So rather than have it occur spontaneously where other individuals, um, candidates are going to come in and talk with other people besides you, set the occasion for this and say, now what I want is just like I gave you the positives and negatives without my being here, I want team members here to talk with you quite openly about the positives and negatives. And you know what? Let's get it away from the environment here. Let's do this over dinner. Or let's go for coffee um, at uh, Blue Bottle or Starbucks, whatever. Mm -hmm. So keeping it very spontaneous, but letting uh, people know that you're really cognizant of how impactful these positives and negatives are. Because mm -hmm. you want them to make a good decision. Great. Just learned something new. Add more to my dog. Can I, can I add something that I think your yeah. listeners, one of the things yeah. that we sort of danced around today, we didn't talk about the financial impact yes. of toxic people. Jeez, Mitch, I didn't even get to that part yet. Yes, in the book, I have what's called a, the, the toxic cost worksheet. Yeah. And my partner is Scott Vercota is sitting here in the interview room today. I want to give him credit because... Shout out to Scott. With, yeah, there's Scott. <laughs> and also my other good friend who's a CPA, Brad uh -huh. Fagerstrom. Both of them helped me construct this toxic cost worksheet mm -hmm. by putting in all the data that I knew, uh, the financial data of the uh, impact that toxic people have on the bottom line of the organization. And they created a formula, both Scott and Brad. And it's, it's really simple. Anyone who is listening today within two minutes can determine the actual financial cost of toxic people in the organization with just two statistics. Mm -hmm. The first statistic is the number of people in your organization and the second statistic is the average compensation. Now, to sort of complicate it just slightly, with the number of people in the organization, I suggest doing, breaking it down to three categories, entry level, mid-level, and high level, and the same thing for compensation, entry level, mid-level, and high level. So number of employees, average compensation, and what this worksheet does, it will spit out the cost of toxic people in your organization. And in general, the, 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 the financial cost, and again, it depends on the context of each organization, ranges anywhere from 4% to 6% of total payroll costs. Mm -hmm. So let's just pretend that the total payroll cost in one organization is um, $10 million, and I'm doing this spontaneously right now, so I'm yes. thinking my math is correct. That means 6% of $10 million is what, the, uh, to what toxic people 
are costing the organization. And 6% of 10 million, I believe, is $600,000. So again, I'm gonna repeat that. If, you're, if your total payroll costs are $10 million, mm-hmm. and, it, and the toxic people, people in your organization, um, the cost will be anywhere from four to six percent in a ten million dollar organization. That'd be six hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. We can't stand by and do nothing anymore. Everyday civility is time has come, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And then, what do you? Uh, how do you build a culture of everyday civility? One behavior at a time. So one of the one of the things that I suggest to people is bring all your teams together and talk about how, how can we be a more productive organization by adapting the mantra in the book of everyday civility. Mm-hmm. And what is one thing each individual will do to bring about everyday civility and what is one thing each team could do. And there's a fair amount of research about goal setting. And when you make a goal public, there is a higher probability it will be realized. So Mm -hmm. I would put people sort of on the spot Mm -hmm. and say, you have a day to think about it or we could do it now. I'd like every individual to talk about one thing that they're going to do differently to bring about everyday civility. And after you've accomplished that one thing, let's go to the next behavior. Pick them away. It's the whole notion of one kind act impacts everyday civility in organizations, impacts individual personal well-being, team performance, and your bottom line. Well, I, I know that we do a lot to have employee retention. Right. What does that mean? Uh, uh, we have, uh, we've Im- implemented, you know, extra health insurance oh. than we would have. We implemented a thing called, um, VTO, you know, volunteer time off where it's like 12 hours a year. They get paid regular rates and go do something that means something to you. Cause that means something to us. Um, uh, those are, no, they're just two those are great things. examples, but the, the, here, here's the positive and the negative of it. Mm-hmm. The positive is with these formal kinds of reward structures with some employees that's going to enhance their behavior and they'll be more apt to engage in everyday civility. However, there's always a shadow side to these kinds Mm -hmm. of behaviors and the shadow Mm -hmm. side is this. You may be retaining some employees who really no longer are committed to your organization, but they're staying because of these great benefits. Yeah, well, I, I, I recognize from all this, the, the lessons I read that, you know, the, it, we just know there's a cost every time a teammate goes to some other team. Mm-hmm. So we try to max out and be as generous as we can without being um, uh, frivolous, you know, as a, as a business, right. Um, everything we can do, but, th- and then this adding this layer of, you know, kind of, I don't want to say zero tolerance for toxicity, but I'm just going to say right. that. Right. But, Cause that's also why people leave. That's right. 
That you're, and you're, so then that's still, you know, the, the replacement cost of a teammate is huge, especially in our, our business. Well, that's the reason for this formula. It's built upon the, the replacement cost. In yeah. general, what we know about replacement costs is an entry-level individual. It's about 50% of their salary. Mid-level professional is about 150% of their salary to replace them. Mm -hmm. And high-level, highly specialized, 400%. To 400, you read the book. Three to four hundred. <laughs> yeah, three to four hundred percent. So back to the sort of regularly scheduled program. Does that mean you shouldn't be doing these these fabulous benefits that you have? Absolutely not. They're, they're, they 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 need to be there. However, enhance that by having discussions at team meetings about everyday civility. One of the suggestions I make in the book is, I love it. At our team meetings, it's it's typical in all organizations. It's like one task after another. Take some time, five minutes at a team meeting and talk about what are some things that we've done this past week that is living out our values of this organization? Mm -hmm. And has anyone experienced anything that we've done that was an obstacle to our achieving the values? Make this values-driven discussion come alive by bringing them into team meetings rather than all the task stuff that we typically attach to team meetings. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that that's a great thing to add. We don't do many team meetings because really, I, no. I mean, we do them sort of ad hoc or when that's okay. Like ne necessary. We don't have like a schedule at every second or third Friday, you know. But as our you know team has grown, I think it you know, becomes more and more important. But um, I have I, ha I have another interesting question. For sure, you that it's kind of is aligned with this, but it's also aligned with what we do, and also one of the things I think you love. So it's kind of like a little box here. But you I have, love this. You love designing. It sounds like you, uh, Robbie, told me you designer. You guys love decorating, designing yes. your houses. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, we're we're. Are you still armchair? You know, I, I'm a real. I'm a corporate psychologist, but we're armchair designers. Nice. <laughs> so you must have worked with designers or architects in this? We, we have, but we do primarily a lot of this stuff ourselves because oh, we just sort of, you know, we learn by trial and error. Right on. There's well, a question what was, coming. What I was hoping <laughs> was you psychoanalyzed interior design and architecture firms and that I could be the beneficiary of that psychoanalysis. Well, you know, analysis. you know what's interesting is, yes, um, and I, I, I don't know about psychoanalyzing, but here's the interesting things when we've talked with designers. One of the things that we look for is how good of a listener is he or she. Not that they have to do everything that we want because obviously you've gone to school for a long time and you've got greater design talents than Scott or I have. But how do you listen and do you say, how do you bounce off ideas? Do you provide then a menu of options? So those are all the kinds of things um, that we look for. The other thing is when we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area, we were interviewed and on the cover of one of the um, local magazines and about a recent renovation we had done. And one of, the, one of the questions, it was a great question that this interviewer asked us is, how do you and Scott deal with being in a relationship, and this month we will be together 31 years, awesome. so how do you deal with being in a relationship and doing all the design 
to renovations of homes. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and the answer that sort of both of us came up with is, you know, it's not the end of the world. We've been through the death of four parents. And when you really look at the big picture of things, you've got to look at um, peace, um, the humanity, um, perspective of things. And then likewise, back to toxic people. Toxic people will say, this is, we have to do this. This is a must. I'm not going to allow anyone to get away with this kind of stuff. And how big a deal really is it? Again, back to the whole notion of everyday civility and one kind act. So you got to put things into perspective. I guess that's the answer that I would give. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, last question then. Really? Yeah, this is my last question. I'm having what? too much fun. Oh, really? <laughs> um, this is just, I'm just waiting for your second book. Well, right? I just go backwards. Let's go back to Do you know, let me read off this, the list this of the books. This book, you can't imagine how long this took me. In fact, I got to tell you an interesting story before we get to your last question. Yeah. This is my sixth book, and my agent, and I had the agent, same agent for all six books. She's fabulous, Lori Harper. And we couldn't find a publisher for this book. And the original title of the book, I'll tell you, this is especially for your listening audience. Yes. The original title of the book was No Work Jerks Allowed. Uh -huh. That was the original title. And Scott knows this, we couldn't find a publisher until Scott came up with the title of the book. Scott's uh -huh. a former marketing executive. Uh -huh. And I get back from the gym at 6.30 in the morning and Scott says to me, I've got the title for your book. Uh -huh. And it was, Why I Don't Work Here Anymore. And within a week, we had a publisher. So you can judge a book by its cover. Ah! <laughs> so what's your last, what's your last well, question? Well, no, that just makes me think of it. It's, it's a, it gets the attention of the, um, the, the businessman, the, the employer, who understands so much of the uh, of employee retention and the value of employee retention. Yes. And that's what this speaks to, right? It is about that. It's about retention. And it's not allowing toxic people to get away with bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And the number one strategy that was the most unsuccessful that leaders reported in our study of 400 was that feedback didn't work. Mm -hmm. And instead, what we have found is if you start establishing a culture of everyday civility and you tailor the feedback, to whether the individual is your direct report peer or boss and use some of the templates mm -hmm. in the book, feedback can work. Mm -hmm. Feedback can work coupled with everyday civility culture. Right. And if it doesn't work, there are consequences. And one of the consequences you is go. You, get, you get to go. But what's interesting is because um, many toxic individuals violate the organization's values, let's say it's respect or dignity, in organizations you have three, four, five, six values. Because they violate the values, and that's clear, what is unclear is in performance reviews, most leaders don't hold uh, employees accountable to both their real task-related work or their content-related work. So one of the things we talk about in the book is a 70-30 split. Mm -hmm. When you're having performance discussions with an employee, 70% of the discussion talks about their real design work, 
in this instance, what they're mm -hmm. really doing, how they're working with real estate agents, mm -hmm. etc. 30% then talks about, and you, they get direct feedback on what they are doing to live out the values of this organization. Mm -hmm. So that 70-30 split is key. So yeah, cool. then it's much easier to fire the individual uh -huh. because now you have that on the record that they did violate the values and you're holding everybody accountable yeah. for this 70-30 split, not just toxic people. Yeah. Um, well, I encourage everyone to go out and go to Amazon and get the book. I really, I'm, you know, I have to admit, I don't read a ton of books. So they and you read New this York, one. New York Times or like, uh. or uh, <laughs> CNN online, you know, like this is what I read because I'm infatuated with that uh, news. But this was awesome, and I'm really glad that I met you. I am and as well. I'm glad Jeff. that you wrote the book. And thank you. Yeah, and and I'm gonna go see you tonight. Yes, I'm, so I'm we're gonna do that tonight too. at the Battery. Yep. Absolutely. And well, this is my last question. Oh, that's it. The last this, question. This is my last question. Um, what is your favorite room in your house? And why? Which My house are you going to start yeah, with? Well, it's, the it, Minneapolis it's, home or, or the Palm Springs. Palm Springs home. It doesn't matter which one. I would say the kitchen. Really? Yeah. And um, we, we love great kitchens. And I love to cook. Uh, my mother was Italian. Mm -hmm. And I've got a lot of recipes from her when she was alive and I cooked with her and the kitchen brings many memories. In fact, often when we're um, having people over for drinks, etc., we first go into the kitchen because that's the, the warm spot of the house and the kitchen is always open to the dining room because I like a real open environment. So that was a great question. I'd say the kitchen. There'd be hands down. Both places. Both places. How many projects have you guys designed together? Well, in um, almost 31 years together, we've had about 20 homes, some at the same time, some at different times in different places in the country. Uh -huh. So Fun. Yeah. That's amazing. I have to say, um, you are Fun. a great interviewer. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say, but you are, you make it easy. Oh, no, no, really. Not only the, the, the prep work that you've done, but the, the, the great open-ended, robust questions that you asked and your own personal excitement about it's, this. Thank you. It's fun. I dig it. Toxic people can be fun. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks. Good luck tonight. And we'll see you. Thank, and uh, thank you. Thank We're you so very much. Thank you, thank Jeff. You. I appreciate this opportunity.